My name is Ted Burns, and I'm Senior Director of Political Affairs and RADPAT for the American College of Radiology Association, and I want to welcome you to our Radvocacy podcast hosted by RADPAT. Our goal with the podcast is to give you a behind-the-scenes look into the various advocacy efforts of the college, our members, and insights from political influencers here in Washington, D.C. Hello, today I'm honored to have with us Congresswoman Lori Trahan, a member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. And uh, welcome. It's been a while since we've talked. We talk on and off as we see each other in D.C., but we're really excited to have you join our podcast today. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me, Ted. Sure. So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. You have a pretty unique background, but before we get into that, as it relates to Capitol Hill... And I don't want to bury the lead, so I'll, I'll just say that. Tell us a little bit about your background, you know, where you grew up, where you went to school, and then kind of how you made your way to D.C., and then we'll get into your background on the Hill. Sure, sure. So I think my family story is one that I think a lot of folks in Massachusetts, especially, you know, families in the Merrimack Valley where I grew up, uh, understand. My grandparents were immigrants. Uh, my grandmother came from Brazil. My grandfather was from Portugal. And like so many, they came to the United States in search of a better life. And like a lot of immigrants at that time, they settled down in a mill city along the Merrimack River in Lowell, and they got to work. My grandmother was a mill girl My in one of the textile mills in Lowell. My grandfather was a carpenter. And like a lot of first-generation Americans, my parents took a similar path. My dad was a union iron worker. My mom juggled, you know, multiple part-time minimum wage jobs while, uh, while supporting my three sisters and me. Uh, you know, we grew up in a small house, uh, so small that... I often had to, you know, fight my sisters to get into the bathroom since all four of us just shared the one that we had. And, you know, our family, we worked for everything we had. I'd wake up before the sun came up and I delivered the newspaper to help my father pack his lunch before he went off to, to work. And, you know, my parents always impressed upon us education and, and hard work. Those were two things that we had control over and that we needed to maximize. So, you know, it was interesting, you know, my, my I knew I wanted to go to Georgetown uh, when I was in the eighth grade, but, you know, my family had a pretty sober perspective about the chances of my going to a school like that because it just wasn't something we could afford. You know, I, I did get lucky. Uh, I was a decent athlete in high school and, you know, able to get an athletic scholarship to go to that school. And that changed, it changed the trajectory of my life, which is, which is why now as a representative, I view a lot of what I, you know, do and, and fight for through that lived experience and how I wouldn't have had a lot of options if it wasn't for, you know, going to college, using sports to get me to college, you know, working for everything that we have. And I just think there are a lot of folks in my district, across Massachusetts, across the country that are that are in a similar spot. And it's uh, it's it's really important that you have representatives who kind of understand that feeling of living paycheck to paycheck and getting, you know, opportunity. And, and the ability to seize on that opportunity to create a better life for them and their family. And that's, that's one that, you know, I lived, I know it. I know that there are a lot of people who I represent who are doing just that. So why Georgetown? Why was that like the school? 
Yeah, so I uh, I thought I was going to be a diplomat. Uh, I was going to be in the Foreign Service Office of Corps. Not only did I know I wanted to go to Georgetown, uh, which was situ- you know situated in Washington D.C., uh, a city I fell in love with, and um, I wanted to be a diplomat. And so going there, uh, I had my sights set on that very early on. Now I'm not a, a diplomat. <laughs> um, <laughs> So what happened, I guess, is the question, the obvious question. When I was finishing up at Georgetown, we found out that my dad had multiple sclerosis. And I think my family was going to need a lot of help was kind of what was going through, you know, sort of my mind. So after graduation, instead of joining a foreign service, I moved home to help my mom and dad. And, you know, costs were a big concern at that time, but also the unpredictability uh, of a, you know, disease like MS. I just didn't know, you know, how that was going to impact my family. Look, my, my dad, fortunately, he had a great insurance through his union, but MS drugs are expensive. It was brutal going through, you know, medication after medication without seeing much benefit for my dad. That experience, you know, the difficult conversations that my family had about affording his me- uh, medicine really shaped my view on the need to make prescription drugs and healthcare in general uh, more affordable and more accessible. Because look, if it wasn't for the benefits negotiated by the union that my dad belonged to, which was the iron workers, I I don't really know what my family would have done. There, there are so many families who are living, you know, just one hospital visit or one diagnosis away from financial ruin. And so that was pretty impactful at a experience at a very impressionable um, age. Well, so you, you go to Georgetown and, and in case anyone's wondering, your athletic prowess is volleyball. And so you go to the Hill or you somehow get into the Hill and it's not totally uncommon, but it's also not super common either. I mean, there's maybe a handful that I can think of right off the top of my head, but you were actually a Hill staffer, now turn member of Congress. And so, you know, kind of talk about that journey and, you know, you knew what you were getting into. You know, oftentimes we'll meet candidates with Pack, and I'll, I'll look at the candidate and say, okay, you want to come in here and you want to do all these things and you're going to change the world. And I said, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into, you know, but you did and you still decided to go for it. Obviously, the the, the better part of the, the work on the Hill outweighed the frustrations that we all have sometimes uh, with things on the Hill and the way it works. Talk a little bit about your decision to do that and kind of the process. And then I want to get a little bit more into uh, Carson Meehan, too, because that's kind of a unique situation. Yeah, uh, certainly. My uh, So when I moved home uh, to help out with my family, I definitely found a different form of public service. Uh, working for my hometown, Congressman Marty Meehan, started out as a scheduler, eventually worked my way up to become his chief of staff. Uh, it was incredibly rewarding. You know, I was able to have a hand in so many different initiatives, both on the policy side, but also, and what often doesn't get talked about is on the constituent service side. Um, certainly was able to build, you know, critical contacts with organizations that were focused on making my hometown of Lowell and those surrounding communities better. And so I I really loved that form of service. It didn't make me at all regret the fact that I wasn't, you know, far away, you know, negotiating peace treaties because (laughs) the work was really rewarding and it was so impactful uh, on individual people's lives and on communities. So I worked for a fair amount of of time uh, for him and, and it was 
it was a great experience. And, you know, you asked the question, even knowing that still running, I didn't have myself running for office, even, you know, after working, you know, in a congressional office, it really didn't cross my mind that I'd be, you know, talking with you today as a member of Congress. I honestly just wanted to, you know, build a better life for my family than I had growing up. But, you know, things changed, certainly for me, you know, could pinpoint that to 2016 to 2018. I was doing a lot of work with women trying to ascend in corporate America. And I saw the result of like, when you had more women around the table, there were better conversations, better decisions, better outcomes. And it was, you know, clear to me that Congress hadn't done its job in terms of electing more women to the body. Um, Not many more were there in 2018 than when I worked there in the 90s. And I felt like that was an important shift that needed to happen in our in our country. And, and that really changed things for me. So anyway, when when Nikki Songus, who was the congresswoman before me, announced her retirement, which was pretty unexpected, I had this moment of clarity that I, I can't say I've had too many times in my life. Uh, and it really is a gift. I, I would urge anybody to listen to it if you are, are lucky enough to have one. I knew I was running for for that seat. And, you know, even though there are some things when you are a staffer, you have a very realistic view of what can be changed and what cannot, frankly. Uh, You know, there are there are rules and procedures in the House that inhibit, you know, the pace or at least constrain the pace by which you can operate. I still knew that I had a, a deep understanding of all that could be done, um, given the constraints. And so we work on that all the time. You know, we operate in a constrained environment, but we've been able to be successful because we, you know, we know how to build coalitions, how to, you know, reach across the aisle uh, when we need when we need to, how to uh, talk to stakeholders uh, and get a real life, life perspective and bring that story to folks because it is the most compelling. So I was set up a lot for success because of my time on the Hill as a staffer. Well, I, I want to talk about that, but before you do, you mentioned something, or before we do, I want to mention something else that came to mind when you were talking, and I kind of went over pretty quickly, but I think it gets overlooked, and it's so critically important it should not be overlooked. Now, this is a comment that, you know, I've been doing this 20-plus years, and Congresswoman Marsha Blackburn, when she was in the House, uh, one time she pulled me aside, and she said, we need more women in Congress. And I said, 100%, I agree. And she said, you should really feel that way as someone in the healthcare industry. And I said, well, why specifically healthcare? You know, I I think we all agree that that's a a solid statement that you're making, but why specific to healthcare? She said, 90 plus percent of healthcare decisions are made by women in this country. And she said, think about it from this perspective. She said, when was the last time your wife told you, you better make that doctor's appointment? I said, "Uh, pretty much every week. And she said, now, is your wife helping your parents with some of their hospital doctor appointments? I said, actually, yeah, now that I think of it. She said, okay. Now, with your kids, Ted, I know you have two kids. Have any of them required any doctor's appointments lately? Yeah, of course. Have you made those appointments? No, I haven't. She said, who made those appointments? I said, my wife did. She goes, now you understand what I'm saying. She said, women are such a huge consumer and under- they understand the, the healthcare process so much better that having that perspective in Congress is so beneficial. And she, she really harped on that. It, it always kind of stuck with me. And you mentioned it too. And And boy, is it so true. I mean, we have issues with mammography screening and so many other issues that, you know, 
a woman understands that otherwise may not. And so I, I think it's a great point. And I think, um, you know, it's something that if we can see more of that uptake, that would be so helpful to the healthcare system. Now, we've kind of teased a little bit about your your work as a chief of staff on the Hill. Now, even then, when you were chief of staff for Marty, that, you know, things are always toxic. You know, people kind of have this, they romanticize, oh, it was never as bad as it is now type of mentality, but it's always been pretty rough. But your boss, when you were on the Hill, was known as a really good bipartisan legislator, you know, whether it was campaign finance reform or whatever the case may be. So talk about a little bit your experience as a chief of staff and dealing on really high visibility bipartisan legislation. And now as a member, you know, still trying to build those bipartisan relationships. Because I, I think when you have conversations with members of Congress, at least the conversations I have with members of Congress all the time is that, you know, yeah, it's kind of as bad as it sounds and, and looks, but it's also not. Like there's still a lot of really good cordial conversations and relationships and, and doing what's best, the best you can most of the time. Obviously, there are certain things that you just, you know, the parties are going to be divided on, but I think it's a little bit better than it's perceived. So I don't know if you want to kind of, that's a long rambling question, but I'd be curious to get your perspective on that. Yeah. So when I got to the Hill uh, in 1995, you know, Newt Gingrich also had just become speaker. And so, you know, it, it, it was an extraordinary uh, time to work through and one that informs how I even work today. Right. Because you're right. uh, You know, there was, so much division in the Congress. And it really was sort of the start of this huge rift between Democrats and Republicans. And yet uh, we were able to pass bipartisan, bicameral campaign finance reform. You know, it was like the first major reform or overhaul we had made to our um, uh, campaign finance laws in decades. And so, you know, it was, of course, that was a long battle. And many times one, we didn't know if we could win, but seeing this idea become law, especially look, you know, Marty dedicated his life and his entire time in Congress to this issue was truly, it was exciting. And I think that, you know, when you have persistence, uh, when you build a team of talented folks around you who sort of understand your culture of persistence and negotiation, getting to yes, it's uh, you really are uh, a different kind of member. You know, I those bipartisan efforts, they aren't dead today. You, you know, you're right to point out that there are some issues that are are very divisive. They're divisive, you know, across our country, uh, not just in in the Congress. And then there are some issues that are, you know, they fall victim to campaign politics. That can be enormously frustrating. But despite all the, you know, the spectacle and the polarization that you see on TV, a lot of our efforts in Congress are bipartisan, including, you know, nearly all half of all the legislation that I've introduced since being here. I mean, I, one of my biggest accomplishments in Congress was the Medication Access and Training Expansion Act, to call it the MADE Act for short. And it's bipartisan legislation. It's um, standardized substance use disorder training to ensure that all prescribers of addictive medications have a baseline knowledge in evidence-based um, addiction prevention and treatment. And, and that's because, you know, far too many families here in, in Massachusetts, across our country, certainly they've lost loved ones because their addiction either went undiagnosed or untreated. So while there's a lot of disagreement and fighting in front of the cameras, uh, lots of these issues like the opioid epidemic, 
they affect all of us, regardless of party affiliation. And it's it's why, you know, it's on us as lawmakers to build consensus, to develop and to be exhaustive about, you know, developing bipartisan solutions that actually help the people we represent. And you know, it doesn't often get reported or, you know, take the headlines, uh, but it happens. Um, and it happened during COVID. It continues to happen on the Energy and Commerce Committee. And it's where I focus my time and my effort because, you know, it's, it's sort of how we rebuild the muscle of working together. Yeah. And it's, it's similar to just your regular local news, right? If you turn on your regular local news, you know, with the exception of sports and weather, and even in, where I'm from in Philadelphia, it even includes the sports, everything's negative, right? It's like this burglary, this, you know, traffic accident, this bad thing, bad thing, bad thing. It's not like they're sitting there spending 20 minutes reporting all the great things people in the community are doing. It's, they may yeah. do one nice little warm and fuzzy piece for you know a minute. And then the rest of the time is, again, going back to the crime and going back to this or that. And so it, it's there's almost an element of it's just not sexy when it's done right, but <laughs> it is done right more often, I think, than it's reported. And I think there's a lot of very thoughtful folks like yourself who, you know, hey, look, if I'm going to be away from my kids, and I'm going to be spending time away from home, and I'm going to be in DC for, you know, four days of a week or five days of the week, I might as well be productive, I might as well try to get something done and, and have a little bit of an impact. Otherwise, why am I doing this? Why am I That's away from exactly. my family? And, and I know I'm preaching to the choir on that. So <laughs> The one thing I want to really stress in this uh, kind of pseudo question next is how important it is and how, I don't want to say rare, because I think most members of Congress are really trying hard to do this well, but I think you're definitely one of the exceptions in, in, in a very good way. And that is having a connection with the value, and maybe this goes back to your staff and your staffing days, but having the value towards interactions with constituents. You mentioned it earlier You've done a great job with with our radiology community. You've you've toured a radiology practice. You've met with our radiologists when they go to Capitol Hill for our Hill Day. And just kind of talk about, you know, again, we have a slide in all of our RADPAT presentations. I think it's like 6% of members of Congress out of the 535 have a healthcare background. So they're not all going to be very educated on healthcare because that's just not their professional background. And why why it's important for our constituent membership to get involved with their legislators and educate them on what they feel and what they see every day as clinicians. But talk about your experience with that because you've been so good to us and I know you've been equally as good to so many other stakeholder groups on other issues and in, in other industries. It, just talk about the value of that and, and how it does have some impact with how you're making decisions. Yeah. So thank you for that. I do uh, consider that a, uh, a tremendous compliment because we do have a goal in our office of being responsive and accessible, and it's for our benefit. Uh, we learn a lot when we meet with families, community groups, uh, practitioners, and frankly, it's the best part of our job. I mean, there's just no better way to get a sense of what's happening on the ground um, and how we can best serve folks that we represent than to hear, listen and hear from them. Uh, you know, I, I got to hear from uh, Dr. Neil Madan, the president of the Massachusetts Radio Radiological Society on your Hill Day earlier this year. And we discussed certainly our, you know, our shared priorities of making sure that we don't see cuts to Medicare and protecting patients from surprise medical bills. But then I also get to ask questions about what is it like day to day? You know, what is your job like day to day? Where 
where's the friction? Where are the obstacles? You know, and, and I do, I meet with a lot of groups on a day-to-day base, basis, but it's, uh, it is this, the meeting with Dr. Madonna, it stood out because of the remarkable work that radiologists do every time they go to work and because of the way they're able to convey what they need from us in Congress to support those life-saving efforts. Now, I wouldn't have uh, the ability to just talk freely about that or, you know, in committee if I didn't go and visit, you know, our, my radiologists at, uh, at my community hospital. And so, look, it's it goes both ways. I mean, y- you uh, said that you're grateful that I take the time to meet, but I'm grateful. I'm grateful to you, Ted, the entire team at the American College of Radiology, uh, and to all the radiologists who show up every day, uh, you know, ready to save lives and who simply want the resources and the support that they need to continue that work at the highest possible level. So it's um, sometimes people don't look at Congress or Washington as being sort of a two-way exchange, right? They think that, you know, there are folks that are just in a bubble making these policy statements or writing this legislation. And for me, and I think for so many um, of my, uh, my colleagues, we're better informed, we're better able to put pen to paper when we've had those interactions, when we've had those tours, when we've talked to people who are actually doing the work, doing the best job that they possibly can, but need, you know, need more resources or less paperwork or whatever it it may be. So um, I think, I think it's really benefited me as, as a representative to have those meetings. It's going to be an interesting fall. As you know, we have some serious issues that you mentioned a lot of them and a lot of it hopefully will be taken care of at the end of this year like it usually is at the end of every year i was thinking maybe we would get into that a little bit more but i know we're a little bit short on time and i and i want to be respectful of your schedule but i the one thing i feel comfort in is knowing that wherever we are uh we have a a great advocate in you and i mean that sincerely and we need to have more legislators like you who you know want to be engaged who aren't afraid to you know ask hard questions and or just even ask questions at all yeah. You know, sometimes it's, you know, you look at, I said, 6% of health care background and members of Congress, it's very intimidating for the 94% who don't have a healthcare background to say, okay, maybe if I ask this question, is that the right question to ask? And I sound silly. I'm a member of Congress. I don't you know, sound like I know what I'm talking about or whatever it may be. But, you know, for you to, to be engaged and be willing to, to uh, interact with our community and so many of the other communities in the healthcare space, it means a lot. And we know that we have a champion in you. And, and I do appreciate that. And I mean that um, very, very truly. So with all that said, we always end our podcasts with what we call a little lightning round of questions. In my mind, before I ask them, I kind of have a, an idea of what the guests may say, but sometimes I'm very surprised. So we'll go through this pretty quickly. These are like quick replies. Uh, favorite food? That's easy. Lobster is my favorite food. Okay. What did you think I was going to say? I figured it would be something northeastern. <laughs> for our for our listeners who don't know, you're from Massachusetts. You love Maine. Clearly, that's the appropriate answer. Um, yeah. You could have gone a couple other ways, but I figured it would be somewhere in that ballpark. I didn't think it would be cheesesteak. Let's put it that way. <laughs> that would have been mine. Favorite place to travel? And I may know this one too. I'm not sure. Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, anywhere new is my favorite place to travel. I'm one of these people who like thinks about like all the places I haven't been rather than going back to places I've already been. But if I had to say I haven't seen enough of Portugal, I'm really keen to get there and spend some time there. 
Very good. Favorite hobby or activity? So I've started to enjoy cooking uh, and entertaining with my kids. Uh, it used to be a solo sport in my house, um, but now <laughs> everyone's joining in and it makes it much more fun and the cleanup is distributed evenly. Um, but then when, <laughs> when, I, when I need to like be by myself and sort of recharge, uh, I still run, I still bike, I try to swim. Those are sort of my alone moments where I get to do my best thinking. Sounds like you're ready to announce your uh, participation in a triathlon or something. <laughs> Those are in my rear view, but who knows? Maybe I have another one in the, in me. <laughs> and then last one, favorite saying or quote. This could be a, a really well-known one, a popular one. This could be something that's just unique to you or to, yeah. you know, in your family. Yeah, so this one was given to me by, I guess it's one of my fallback, and I'm not going to get the whole thing right because it's a little bit longer, but I will paraphrase, paraphrase, but it's the Calvin Coolidge quote on persistence, and it starts, you know, nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. He talks about talent and genius and education, but it basically says persistence and determination alone are omnipotent, and the slogan press on has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race. And I know in my personal life uh, and my professional life that persistence has always been um, what has gotten me positive outcomes and success. I just don't hear no. I just don't even know how to give up. And I think that's something that's well within everyone's control. And it's an attribute that really, you know, can catapult you into, um, you know, success. And I think that's great too. We, we both have kids that are pretty close in age. Mine are slightly older, but it's such a great message for kids because our society is so results focused and results oriented that sometimes they can get hung up on that, especially if they're doing sports and they don't have that great game or that immediate impact from working hard the week before, but just keep on keeping on. I mean, it's really <laughs> that simple and, and that's a really good message. So, well, look, I want to thank you for your time. I look forward to seeing you soon. I'm sure, I guess you're back in a couple weeks. Uh, we'll run into each other a lot in September. As you know, September is a very busy month on the Hill for a lot of reasons. And so I look forward to us uh, spending more time together. And again, thank you for your time today. I think it's a really good snapshot for our listeners into, you know, members of Congress are regular people and they've got regular things that they're worried about just as much as the, their own constituents are and, you know, what it takes to, to really make an impact. So thank you. Thank you, Ted. Thanks for having me and I'll see you soon. Take care.